0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, introducing Your Cancer, a mission to spotlight the cancer community and recognize those at the forefront of cancer care. Learn more at yourcancer.org. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the role of social work in cancer care with licensed clinical social workers Laura Donnelly and Jessica Stein. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at the Yale School of Medicine and director of hematologic malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center.
1: So I can tell you why I think social work is important, but uh, uh, tell me how you guys interface with patients.
2: Well, we meet with patients individually, uh, and sometimes the family all together at the time of diagnosis and anywhere along the continuum of their care into survivorship, sometimes towards end of life and, uh, really help with support and coping and strategizing. And one of the things that we really try to help, uh, connect patients with is, is other supports, you know, in, in their community and within the cancer center. And, uh, one of the really uh, important um, venues for getting support is a support group, and Jessica and I facilitate many support groups in and, and the cancer center we work at. Yes,
3: and we find that patients and families report back to us that they find the support groups extremely helpful. And attendance is pretty pretty good and pretty consistent in most of the groups.
1: Hmm. So, so let me get this right. So um, is every patient who presents at your cancer center evaluated by a social worker?
3: I wish I could say yes to that, but unfortunately, that's not the case. So we try to see as many patients as we can, new diagnoses, and of course, patients that are identified to us as having some concerns and questions.
1: Mm -hmm. So anybody who is experiencing some kind of distress or needs help figuring things out?
2: Yes. There's uh, uh, several tools that are utilized by the nursing staff and by the staff in the beginning, the medical team, to determine if there's other stressors in a person's life that they're um, carrying with them before they come into the cancer diagnosis, um, which would uh, alert us to get involved you know, more quickly. Um, we do try to meet new patients on their first day. Um, I work in an outpatient center, so uh, the patients... Patients who are coming for their first day of treatment are identified on a list that I get every day, and I do mm. try to stop by and say hello at least and introduce myself and just check in, see how they're doing, ask if there's any concerns. Um, so we, we really do make our greatest efforts to reach as many of our patients as possible, but, but there are uh, – you know, systems put into place that help us identify patients that might have greater need, um, more intense needs, you know, and we get to them early on. We make that a priority.
1: Are most patients open to meeting with a social worker or do some people kind of think that's a stigmatizing thing? Uh, um, or is that – are those days over?
3: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to say I think those days are over. I, it's the rare per patient, very rare, that is not appreciative and interested in, in at least talking – for initial visit. Most patients and families are very receptive, and I have to say very appreciative that we're there. And at at the first visit, the first time we see somebody, we will tell them, for example, about all the groups that we have, the support groups. So they get that information, and that might be something that, if they're not necessarily interested in attending the support group right away, they know it's there. And they know down the road they could come to the group. And it's also, I think, people at the moment may—things are going really well, and they're they're very happy to meet us. And they may not have a need, but we, we always provide our contact information, a business card, because a month later, two months later, we might get a call when things change. And— So that's why, as Laura said, it's really important to try to at least meet people when they first come. Mm
1: -hmm. So is the offering or at least the description of the support group something that everybody gets or are you focusing on certain targeted problems or...
3: Uh, No, our our support groups are disease-based, so diagnosis-based. So if we we have many support groups, I think we counted about 15 or 16. So when we see a patient... With a diagnosis where we know we have a group, we always mention, like we have a head and to name a few, we have a head and neck support group, we have a pancreatic cancer support group, we have a GI support group, there's, the list is pretty long. So when we see a patient with that diagnosis, we let them know, oh, by the way, there is a group for you. And um, here's the contact information and let us know if, if you want to come to the group. Most of the groups are open-ended. So you... You can come anytime, you can come once, never come back, or you can attend every meeting that you want. So it's pretty open-ended that way.
2: And I find people even when perhaps their treatment is completed and they're into survivorship and Mm -hmm. they're no longer in active treatment, maybe even back in work, back, you know, integrated into regular life. Sometimes they like to continue to attend, and sometimes it gives them a lot of meaning to be able to give Feedback. back, to, um, newly, give back yeah. to newly diagnosed patients, and uh, it can be a very rewarding experience mm. for them to you know, offer hope and say, you know, look, I got through it too. I was exactly, you know, where you were, you know, five years ago, seven years ago. um, And this is what I did. And this is what helped me get through. And it really offers, uh, you know, more newly diagnosed people a lot of hope. So we have found that some, some members, some people, really like to stay connected with the group. And then I think for survivors, there's also that possibility that their cancer could recur. So I think it, it makes them also sort of feel like if that if that was to happen for me, I have a group right here that could, you know, support mm-hmm. me. I know the people who are current in it. Right now I can really give back and share, but should my disease recur, you know, I, I have a support in place.
1: Yeah, I understand.
3: I,
2: I was gonna say that a group that is that really speaks to that is the prostate
3: cancer support group, which I run with another colleague of mine. We co-lead it. That group has been going on for over ten years. It may be fifteen years or longer. And there are gent there's one gentleman, two that I can think of that have been coming to that group for ten years.
1: No women? Oh uh,
3: sorry. Uh, <laughs> Little joke uh, there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they are not—obviously, they're not in active treatment. They're post-treatment, but they like coming to the group. They they offer a lot of support and information to newly diagnosed people. In addition, one of the gentlemen has said, I keep coming here because everything with me is stable now. But if this should recur or something happens, I know I have a place to go. Well, I will be supported and I will get information that I may need.
1: Yeah, I can imagine in prostate cancer that's so important because there's so many choices of primary therapy, mm-hmm. and there's all this often uncertainty because recurrence can take uh, happen later and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So I, I can see where that would be, you know, especially useful in that population. Now, are are the groups? Um, only for patients, or are family members and partners welcome, or it's really a patient-oriented thing? What is it?
2: Well, there there are actually for both. Um, we do have, uh, you know, at our cancer center, and I know many cancer centers. In fact, I think it's actually a um, a standard of care that support mm-hmm. groups are provided in in national cancer centers, major cancer centers. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, where where I am um we do have some groups with both uh, patients and families where family members are welcome and we have a group just for family members it's a caregiver support group mm. and and family members I use that that word you know loosely because it can be a good friend it can sure. be anyone who is really supporting a person with cancer um, so there's, there's they have the unique issues group. right oh sh- for sure for sure mm-hmm.
1: I also think there might be and correct me if I'm wrong, but i there might be some benefit to patients sometimes being only with other patients uh, so that they can freely talk about how they feel about abandoning their families potentially or the stress their family is putting on them. They might not want to say that if their mm-hmm. partner is there, or there.
3: And the flip there's side there. is I think there's a benefit to family members meeting without the patient there because then they meet with other care- So how
1: frustrating it is
3: yeah caregivers and what their fears are and, and over how overwhelmed they feel etc where they would feel guilty i think expressing some of those emotions in front of the patient with other caregivers i think they're free to express those feelings and get support
1: what's the difference between a support group and a therapy group or is there really no difference
2: I think there is a a difference. I think when when Jessica and I both went to social work school, we really – we did a lot of training on different types of groups. And I think a therapy group has very specific goals that, you know, um, each person wants to attain. And I think a support group, we're really meeting people where they're at right now. And it's really – the goal is really just to help and support. It's not to maybe um, achieve some personal goal. I think that's Do correct. You know,
3: on that? Yeah, I and I think the support groups that we run where if it was a therapy group I think it would not be so open-ended. It would be a set number of people, perhaps like 6 sessions, something like that. Mm-hmm. Where the support groups are very open-ended and it's really not to address individual sort of Psycho, psychological issues. It's the, you're there to address very, something very specific, which is dealing with my cancer, mm-hmm. and how it's affected my life and the treatments, etc., and my fears. So that that's the focus. And it is, as I said, very open ended. You can come once, never come again. You you could come every time the group meets. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. They're, and they're they're all facilitated by professionals, by mental health professionals. They're
3: all facilitated by. LCSWs, like Laura and myself, yes.
1: Uh-huh. My social workers. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And, and, you know, this this kind of drop-in thing, you know, I, I kind of get that. But I also wonder about, like, don't people require some time to sort of be comfortable with each other? And if people are just kind of dropping in all the time, how open are you going to be? Or am I kind of—is it just not that big a deal?
3: Well— I can say in the groups that I run, with the five of them, I would say there seems to be a core group of people mm. who are consistent in their attendance, and then we will have new people that will come newly diagnosed, and sometimes they stay on, sometimes they don't. But what I do find in part of the group dynamic is the core people are very— Proactive and very welcoming of new people, and embrace them.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So, that's the good thing.
1: Yeah. So these groups meet weekly, or twice a week, or once a month, or
2: once a month or twice a month, either every other week or once a month. Gotcha. Right.
1: And about how many people do do they tend to have?
3: Well, um, for me, the biggest attendance I have is the prostate cancer support group. Which can have 15 men easily. Okay. And um, the other group, where I have a, the larger attendance, is the breast cancer support group that I run on the shoreline on Goose Lane, and that too can have 12 to 14 people.
1: Yeah, but that's that's not huge. I mean, well, it's not like 50.
3: No, no. But you can't you can't really run a group much larger than that. It becomes unwieldy and. It's just the way the format is that people—most of our groups, we start out, everybody says their name, their diagnosis, and gives a thumbnail sketch of where they're at. Are they in treatment? Are they post-treatment? And we go around the room. So being that these groups mostly run 60 to 90 minutes, you couldn't mm. really manage it much larger than that.
1: Yeah, no, I imagine that. Yeah, I thought maybe they'd be two hours or—
3: no, sixty to ninety is the standard. Actually, Got.
1: Got
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, that's
1: why you do what you do, and I do we what do. I do.
2: We do find that uh, some patients they really connect, and so sometimes the groups they they go on two hours, but maybe out in the hallway, or maybe mm. down in the lobby, or the maybe meeting after the coffee. meeting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: All, right. Go, All right. They will go
2: and have coffee sometimes after <laughs> the group is officially over.
3: So there's a lot of connection that goes on, which I think is very healing for a lot of people.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. Addressing your cancer takes everyone. Now AstraZeneca is introducing a movement to bring together and celebrate the cancer community. Learn more at yourcancer.org. This is a Medical Minute about head and neck cancers. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, and in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org.
1: You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Laura Donnelly and Jessica Stein. We've been discussing support groups uh, and the role of social work in uh, the care of patients with cancer. Uh, guys, before the before the um, break, you guys... Uh, Made it pretty clear that uh, the that, that sixty ninety minutes was the right amount of time, and no more than fifteen participants was the right amount of people. Uh, and I appreciate your expertise there. And you told me that um, you know people go around the room, they uh, you know say their name and their diagnosis. Sounds a little bit like a twelve-step program, a little bit. And um, just joking there. Um, but uh, does each meeting have a theme, or, or whatever's on people's mind, or? how does that work?
2: Well, um, I would say that varies. There are times that we bring in guest speakers Mm. and typically I'll ask the group ahead of time. Um, I ask in the group, what do you want to get out of this? What what motivates you to come and what would be helpful for you and oftentimes people say you know I'd like to hear more about the role of nutrition or I'd like to hear about advances in treatment could we have an oncologist come could we have a pharmacist could we have um, any number could we have integrative medicine can we learn about Reiki and Tai Chi and integrative therapies to go along with my traditional therapy so there is there is that component and then uh Sometimes, according to the time of the year, I will sort of plan a theme Mm -hmm. and I present it and I see what the group does with it. Sometimes they stay on that topic. Sometimes, you know, it doesn't catch on and they kind of veer into what's important for them that day, whether it's a a real issue. Um, So, for example, last year, I remember one day happened to be designated National Healthcare Decision Day, which is – A day in which uh, to bring awareness to the importance of advanced directives and wills and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So it actually happened to be that day. And uh, I brought together some materials and we had a discussion about it. And it was a very lively discussion. So some days there is a theme. Some days it's um, I come in and how is everyone doing and where is everyone at and what do you have on your mind? So it can be a mix of of both of those things, Mm -hmm. I think.
1: Do you ever find a time when like you open it up like that and then it's like the, the old Saturday Night Live skit where the radio guy is – you remember this? And he's waiting for the call and he says, I'm going to kill this cat if somebody doesn't call. There <laughs> was like dead silence.
3: <laughs> I have to say that uh, that's never really happened in a group I've run. I think because if you have cancer and if you are in treatment or post-treatment, there's a lot to talk about and I, that's just – Never happened, but I think Laura's point is is well taken in that the patients own the group, so we we try to listen to the patients as, as to what they want. So, like Laura said, some weeks it's very open ended, and some weeks I know in one of my groups for the prostate group, issues about sexuality kept coming up, kept coming up, and we my the co leader and myself we said to the group, "Would you want somebody to come here?" to talk about um, those issues? And they were like, yes, absolutely. So we were able to get a, a local physician, a Yale physician who deals with those issues to come and speak about that. So so it's driven, as Laura said, it's driven by what they want, and we try to, to, to listen to that.
1: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that some of the people in the group, you know, may get close and have— um you know, relationships outside of mm-hmm. the the group. And I'm wondering, you know, given that you you know, the groups have cancer patients and I assume some of them have active cancer or metastatic cancer, that there's going to be process where some people are going to get sick and either just stop coming to the group mm-hmm. or die, and that's mm-hmm. gotta that's gotta be a lot in a group like that. Well No?
3: Yeah, yeah, it is. I I, I there is The prostate group, there was one gentleman who probably was coming to the group for, from, from its inception, maybe 15 years, and he was an older gentleman, and he was extremely knowledgeable about prostate cancer and the latest treatments. He would bring in articles from different medical journals and very outgoing, very warm, very caring, and he did pass away. And that was very hard for the group. I I would describe him as the major domo of the group. Mm. And we—he wrote poetry. He was a very, very interesting guy. And the group—we dealt with his death in the group, and a lot of the people from the group actually, including myself, went to his uh, memorial service. And, yeah, it was difficult, but it was dealt with in a a pretty— Effective manner, I think.
1: Do you think that those kind of experiences um, help, or in some ways, people thinking about the reality that they are dealing with cancer, and is that part of the process uh, about dealing about the the what ifs and what if things don't go so well, or not really?
3: I I think in this case, he was such a uh, inspiration to us all. I mean, he was diagnosed. He, he lived with cancer for probably 20 years. And... You um,
1: could see it as a life well lived.
3: It was. And he used to say, his saying was, when, when each treatment started failing, his cancer recurred and the tre- each treatment started failing, right. he used to come to the group and he said, well, I'm dying, but not today. That's what he used to say. And he always made us laugh. And so I think in this unique case, people saw... He was an inspiration. Mm, Yeah, even in his passing, he was an inspiration.
1: Probably to his physicians as well. I bet absolutely. Yeah, there are remarkable people like that.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I think it can be. I think it can really be difficult uh, for some people, especially if it's maybe a sudden passing. Um, Maybe things didn't go as expected. This person was doing pretty well in treatment, and then there was an unexpected turn in their in their treatment or in you know, maybe some complication came up and, um, it can be very difficult for the group. It can it can produce a lot of internal fear. I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. I would think. Uh, will this happen to me? Um, so I think those are opportunities to work with people, um, even kind of individually. If I see one person really struggling with a loss, like I can offer to meet with them individually to talk about it. Um, and we 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 do this together as a group. So I think there's some uh, strength in that and some power in that that. Mm. That they're not alone in that moment in dealing with that loss, that we're all kind of helping and doing it together. Yeah. So um, but I, I do think and in, in my one of my groups about a year ago, we we also had a loss that was a little unexpected from also a longtime member. And the group wanted to ask for a way to acknowledge it. So um, at the following meeting, and I did it at the very end of the meeting in case anybody didn't know that individual or, or, you know, thought it would be too hard. um, And I brought in some kind of nice um, poems about about life and sort of the life cycle. And I gave everybody an opportunity to share their experience with that person. And we lit candles. And it was sort of a, a really mm. uh, meaningful, full moment for everybody. Mm. And um, and really, everybody wanted to stay for it. So that was that was also, I think, everybody felt comfortable in that moment with each other and wanted to stay. So nice. you it know, was I, nice.
1: I'm often surprised, not often, but uh, sometimes I'm surprised uh, when a patient of mine who has uh, leukemia and remission or hopefully cured and um, and they reveal uh, about the other patients that they met You know, they spend a lot of time in the hospital, so they tend to meet some of the other patients, and some of them are chit-chatty. And, you know, about so-and-so was admitted at the same time I was, diagnosed the same time I was, and look what happened to her, or I know what happened to him. And, you know, because we're so HIPAA protective, right, we never talk about other patients, Mm -hmm. but it turns out that they know a lot, and they are really processing a lot. So I'm actually kind of always happy when they bring that up so I can— you know, at least point them, point out when the situation is substan- uh, substantially different in right. their case. Mm-hmm. St- if I can alleviate, or just acknowledge, yeah, that's got to be super stressful to understand that you're dealing with something that's uncertain, even mm. uh, though you're doing well. So I, I try to put do my, uh, I try to put my two cents. <laughs> oh, my, put on my little my little one on one caring physician hat, if not. Uh, or empathy hat. Um, so so I, I get how imp- important that can be. Um, so, how do people find out about the groups? I obviously, you you've talked to some of the people, but what if somebody's being cared for, uh, not? Your cancer center, are they welcome to come? To?
3: Anybody, yeah, anybody can come.
2: Uh, how they would find out about, like, it's on the website, right? It's on, it's on the website of our cancer center. But right. also, mm-hmm. I know, for example, um, there's a lot of disease-specific organizations.
1: Advocacy groups.
2: Advocacy groups. Mm-hmm. Groups that have websites. And one of the links on the websites are support groups for whatever type of disease, whether it's pancreatic, mm-hmm. whether it's um, head and neck, Anything, whether yeah. it's... You know they 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 leukemia lymphoma sure. Society, many different um, organizations have information Lists. about where they can find support, and we're often listed, yeah, or you know, geographically, it's listed. So we do get phone calls from all over, yes, yeah, I think American Cancer Society in
3: Connecticut, if you call there and you say, "I'm looking for a group, I have." GI cancer. We we are listed. They have a list of all our groups, and they also have groups throughout Everywhere. the state. Well, throughout the state. So
1: those resources for people to find yeah. yes. easily nowadays. Yes, mm-hmm. that, yes, that's great. What about? Do you ever, um, you know, have somebody in your group where it's your assessment again it's as a professional that maybe this support group isn't really enough for this person. This person needs some more, you know, full on psychological or psychiatric help or. What what do you do?
2: Yes, we, we do occasionally come upon that situation, and I think that's why it's important to have a licensed clinician sure. facilitating the groups because um, some of those types of issues can bring about some types of behaviors in a group that could be disruptive or could be difficult for other members to um, sit with and be in the group. So I think it's our role to really... Um, be able to pause someone in the middle of the group I'm gonna pause you right there and I'm gonna you know so there's there's that piece and then I think sometimes when we see that we can have a conversation with the person after the group and say you know I can see that there is really a lot going on for you and maybe we could meet individually for a few times or mm-hmm. um, you know maybe that might be the best way for you to start and then maybe we can look at the group you know a little bit, a little bit further down the line, but for so they right may, now... So
1: you might suggest they, they not come to the group for a while?
2: We might. We, we might. might.
3: Especially if if they really are disruptive, I think, and upsetting to the other members. I think we might... We What we would do is say, I'm not sure the group is meeting your needs, and I have some other ideas, and let's meet individually. Mm-hmm. And then I think that's what we would do, meet once or twice, and probably at that point talk to them about... In our assessment, what we think would meet their needs, and more than likely, that might be an individual therapist, which we would work on getting them a referral to. So you
1: might refer them to to Mm -hmm. full-on therapy Mm -hmm. outside of your...
2: Right. uh, Right. Mm But if the issues are not so, I mean, they're there, but they're not so disruptive and we can work with it mm-hmm. in terms sure. of using our facilitation skills, we really try to do that. Right. First.
1: But right. so maybe they maybe they need both. Maybe they need some time by themselves. True. But they can still, like once it's pointed out to them, they can behave. I, I, it's not always a negative behavior, but I mean,
3: right. Know, right.
1: just watch out for the behaviors that right. are of concern to the other people. Right. Right. Laura Donnelly and Jessica Stein
0: are licensed clinical social workers. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.